All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Fishy, fishy, fishy fish. A fish, a fish, a fishy you. Oh, fishy, fishy, fishy fish that went wherever I did go. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and we have got a fantastic episode for you this week. In this episode, I'll be talking with Stephanie Valataro, the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications at the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. She is one of the most vocal advocates for bringing new anglers and boaters into the activities, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to talk with her today. And after that conversation, I'll be taking a few swigs of Redemption Bourbon and then counting down my top 10 favorite soft body lures for redfish. Hey, speaking of redfish, let's take a professorial moment and let me teach you two things about redfish that I will bet you did not know. Now, of course, redfish can be found in Atlantic waters ranging from as far north as Massachusetts down through Florida and then back up along the Gulf Coast across the Texas coast to northern Mexico. Now, here's an interesting thing. Red drum are often found in the same places as black drum, right? They are very related, but I bet you did not know that they can crossbreed, creating a really hardy hybrid. I'll also bet you didn't know that redfish are one of the fastest growing fish out there. They can reach maturity in three to five years, measuring 28 to 33 inches long. They reach approximately 11 inches and one pound in their first year, 17 to 22 inches and three and a half pounds in two years, and 22 to 24 inches and six to eight pounds in just three years. That is some fast growth for a fish. So now you'll know a little bit more about redfish. And like I said, in just a bit, I'll be counting down my favorite soft bodies for targeting reds. Hey, as always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe or follow button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And please let all of your friends, family, associates, and drinking buddies, as well as your known associates, let them all know about the Rodcast. Hey, speaking of, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. Fishy, fishy, fishy fish. A fish, a fish, a fishy you. Oh, fishy, fishy, fishy fish that went wherever I did go. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and we have got a fantastic episode for you this week because why would we bring you a mundane episode? That would be boring. Hey, in this episode, episode, I will be talking with Stephanie Vadalero, the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications at the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. She's one of the most vocal advocates for bringing new anglers and boaters into those activities, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to talk with her today. 
And after that conversation, I'll be taking a few swigs of redemption bourbon and then counting down my top 10 favorite soft body lures for redfish. Hey, speaking of redfish, let's take a professorial moment and let me teach you two things about redfish that I will bet you did not know. Now, of course, redfish can be found in Atlantic waters ranging from as far north as Massachusetts down through Florida and then back up along the Gulf Coast across the Texas coast to northern Mexico. Now, here's an interesting thing. Red drum are often found in the same places as black drum, right? They are very related, but I bet you did not know that they can crossbreed, creating a really hardy hybrid. I'll also bet you didn't know that redfish are one of the fastest growing fish out there. They can reach maturity in three to five years, measuring 28 to 33 inches long. They reach approximately 11 inches and one pound in their first year, 17 to 22 inches and three and a half pounds in two years, and 22 to 24 inches and six to eight pounds in just three years. That is some fast growth for a fish. So now you'll know a little bit more about redfish. And like I said, in just a bit, I'll be counting down my favorite soft bodies for targeting reds. Hey, as always, be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe or follow button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. And please let all of your friends, family, associates, and drinking buddies, as well as your known associates, let them all know about the Rodcast. Hey, speaking of, welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. Okay, my listening crew, we have got a fantastic conversation in store for you today because we have got Stephanie Vadalero with us today. Stephanie is the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications at the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. RBFF is a national nonprofit organization that works to increase participation in recreational boating and fishing, and in turn, it promotes conservation and restoration of our country's aquatic natural resources. RBFF is the parent organization to TakeMeFishing.org, which focuses on teaching new anglers and boaters how to get involved with boating and fishing. Now, Stephanie is a lifelong angler who was introduced to boating and fishing on Lake Erie as a young kid, but then when her family moved to Isla Morada when she was seven and her dad started guiding offshore, it kind of sealed off the beginning for her of having to be involved with the fishing industry. Now, Stephanie brings that family tradition and passion for fishing and boating to the recreational boating and fishing industries and is one of the leading experts in the goings-on of these industries. And her work to recruit new anglers and retain both new and veteran anglers in boating and fishing is paramount to the future of fishing and boating. I am thrilled to have her with us today. Stephanie, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So, we often start off our conversations on the Rodcast with some background information about the guest on the show, a kind of origin story to set the context. Now, I mentioned your experiences as a little kid on Lake Erie and then growing up in Isla Morada, but I was wondering if you could expand on that and tell us about how fishing and boating really became a central part of your life. And I got to tell you, I really want to hear about your chum bag shaking duties. <laughs> Yeah, that was my job as a kid. Yeah, I, I mean, you sort of set it up already, but um, I grew up in a fishing and boating family, uh, starting out in Ohio as a as a really small youngster. People ask me, what was your first fish? And I'm like, I don't remember. I was probably three years old. Um, and those experiences just got even more rich when our family relocated to the Keys 
and my dad became first an offshore guide and then a flats guide. So I really grew up um, in, on, and around the water doing lots of fishing and boating. And um, yeah, one of my jobs as a kid was to uh, shake the chum bag when it was time. And I would keep a close eye on the, the live well too. That was a fun place to uh, play and experience um, all that the the interesting ecosystem down there has to offer. Excellent. All right. I'm going to come back to family and fishing in a minute, but to continue to help set the stage for today's conversation, could you tell us a little bit about what the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation is and does? Because while I think a lot of us who work inside the industry know about RBFF, a lot of my listeners who are not insiders may not be as familiar. Sure. Happy to. So um, back in the 90s, uh, fishing was starting to, fishing participation was starting to face a downward trend. And we have something really unique to our sport, our activity, in that when you buy a fishing license, when you buy equipment, fishing tackle, and when you buy uh, fuel for your boat, money goes back to state agencies where you live and other uh, national organizations to do really, really important conservation work. We're talking uh, water quality, fish stocking, uh, repairing of boat ramps and docks, et cetera. So it's sort of like pay to play. You go out and you, you recreate in the space and you're supporting the... Uh... That said, um, when participation numbers were going down in the 90s, um, you know, there was a concern that we weren't going to have the money we needed to do this conservation work. So the RBFF was created in 1998 as the industry's um, marketing arm, if you will. And we're charged with getting new people out on the water. Uh, we operate primarily um, through that sport fish restoration program with a grant we compete for every five years um, to... Number one, get people aware of fishing and boating, teach them how to do it, teach them where to go, and then we support the industry and help them do that with their own consumers. This is a year for you for the funding re-up too, isn't it? Isn't 2022 a, a reapply year? It is. We are uh, anxiously awaiting the RFP any day now. <laughs> uh, excellent. That'll keep you busy for a while, I suppose. It certainly will. <laughs> All right. So with that background, both the personal and the professional, let me offer a prompt in this way. You advocate, and I want to be careful here because RBFF is federally funded and you don't officially do advocacy work. So in a, a non-formal sense of the word, you advocate for many different aspects of recreational boating and fishing, among which includes recruiting new anglers and introducing kids to fishing and boating. Clearly, from what you've just told us about your own experiences, family is a big part of introducing kids to fishing. Now, I know you have a daughter. Um, could you talk about how you introduce your own kids to fishing and boating? Or kid? Yeah, kid, kids. Yeah, and, and I think, oh gosh, there's several things I could say there. But we have found in our research, I, our primary charge over the last, you know, 20 plus years has to has been to bring newcomers into the sport. And there are certain audiences that are very important. Youth are very important because there is a statistic that if today's anglers, 83% uh, of today's anglers fish before the age of 12. If you get in as a kid, there's a lot greater chance that you're going to keep with it as you go. Um, other important audiences are women and other growing minority groups like Hispanics, 
um, African-Americans, et cetera. Our sport is traditionally um, older white males. And we know that our population is changing. So we really focus on those groups to, to fill the pipeline, keep it growing and keep that important conservation work happening. Um, in terms of kids, yes. I mean, it's like a no brainer that I taught my daughter um, how to fish. But I think one of the things that people don't realize is they put a lot of pressure on themselves to catch fish. And if you've been doing it your whole life, like like me and like you, you know that it's it's much more about the whole experience than just catching fish. Catching fish is fun. It's amazing. But my daughter started out playing in the bait bucket, you know, casting a bobber with no hook. In fact, she didn't want a hook. She just wanted to cast. So I think there's a lot of things about the experience that people don't realize um, they will enjoy or that is good for them. So along those lines, you wrote a piece for Playground magazine a couple of years ago about taking your first family fishing adventure. Could you give us an overview of your advice for families taking their first fishing trip with their kids, for making those initial introductions, uh, even for parents who it's also their first time fishing? Yeah, when you're taking the kids out for the first time or the first few times, honestly, um, don't make it don't put pressure on the kids, get them involved from the beginning, have them decide what snacks you're going to pack, let them see the bait and play around with it. Uh, make it a short trip, go a couple hours in a city park. Don't, you know, haul them a three hour drive away and, you know, <laughs> make it simple and bring other activities. I mean, we all know kids have short attention spans. Um, if you're not catching, let them try to catch butterflies or play around at the shoreline and collect rocks or skip rocks. Um, ease them into it. Don't make it an all or nothing kind of experience. So I'm assuming that part of that advice also carries over not to go with the traditional dad model of yelling at the kid for dumping the bait bucket or tangling the lines or things like that as well. <laughs> well, I can only assume that kids would not respond well to that. <laughs> Too much pressure. But um, yeah, I mean, make it a fun activity that you can combine with other things um, and, and ease them into it. So it's not like a, a do or die situation. You know, as you say, ease them into it. I, I'm going to kind of go off script here a little bit, but I remember Somebody recommended when I, when my first son was born, that in order to get a kid comfortable with the idea of being on a boat and in the space of a boat, that during the course of the day to play games with the kid in the house where the kid is in a laundry basket and pretending the laundry basket's a boat so that they're used to the idea of a confined space and not bouncing around too much. And so there are some interesting strategies out there for teaching kids early on how to participate in, in boating and fishing. I've never heard that one. That's really fun. All right. So similar to your encouragement for introducing kids to fishing, you are a vocal proponent for introducing more women to fishing and boating. Now, forgive the length of this prompt, but I want to throw a few numbers out here for our listening crew. You know these numbers, mostly to contextualize the role of women in fishing and boating. So according to RBFF information, 19.4 million women fished in 2021, which was an increase of 8% over 2019. And I assume that those 19.4 million anglers are anglers who purchased licenses that we weren't out we're just counting who's casting, right? And in 2021, 1.6 million women went fishing for the first time. And women make up 37% of all those who fished that year. And a lot of them fished because they wanted time with family and friends. 
Now, a lot of the data we see inside the industry shows that women begin fishing at a fairly high rate, but also drop out at high rates because they feel like they don't fit or aren't welcome in what has traditionally, like you said, been a male-dominated activity. I think it was in the Women in Fishing podcast you did with Chris Woodward earlier this year. You explained this as a, explained this as a sense of not being welcome in the boys' club. Could you talk about this important part of your work and the importance of introducing and retaining more women to angling and boating? Absolutely. I love this topic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. A lot of women uh, come into the sport each year. In fact, 45% of newcomers each year are women, yet we're still hovering at 37% of overall participation. So it's a huge churn rate. And what's happening is they're coming in, they're trying it out, and um, they're literally not seeing themselves in the sport. They're walking into a tackle shop and they, they just feel like it's not something for them. They're opening a catalog and they don't see other women. They don't see um, something that appeals to them. And there are fundamental differences between men and women and how they experience fishing and boating. You sort of alluded to it in your intro. Um, we look at you know primary reasons to fish. And the top five are kind of the same for men and women, but they go in a very different order. For men, the number one reason, this is generalizing, of course, is to catch fish. They want to go, they want to catch fish. Like that's why they're there. For women, the top reason is to spend time with family and friends. And I want to bring this to life with a, a recent um, trip we did where we took a bunch of women, uh, media, members of the media out fishing in Seattle. The Making, we Women Making fishing. Waves event, I believe, right? Yes, yes. It was for National Fishing and Boating Week in early June. And we took a group of women, many who had never been fishing before, uh, salmon fishing in Seattle. And it was really interesting, like pulling into the fishing grounds. And it was interesting seeing our research come to life, okay? There's this whole field of fishing boats. Um, I would say primarily men, one or two people on the boat, very quiet, very serious atmosphere. We are here to catch fish. Here comes our boats. <laughs> we had three boats. We're in colorful clothing. We're talking. We got music on. We're dancing around the boat. It's just a different appeal. It's a different experience. And we need to market to women in a different way so they understand that there is something there for them. Okay, so given that, I'm going to, uh, this is, I, I promised you no controversial question. So this isn't controversial, but it's a little bit different. It got me thinking when you were talking about that. One of the trends that I notice, and I think a lot of us are noticing in social media, is this new trend of the 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 girl in the bikini holding up the fish, which seems like a very different kind of women in fishing than necessarily what you're talking about, this sort of empowered position. What is your what are your thoughts on this new trend of the, you know, the the babes in bikinis holding up fish? I mean, my my social media is just inundated with that stuff. And I don't, I mean, I don't mean to be critical, but I don't learn anything about fishing from that. Yeah, it, it, that's that's kind of what I was gonna say. I mean it it's it's been around forever. I mean, as a kid, I could, maybe it wasn't on social media, but it was at the boat shows or wherever that you go, you know, you, you see this and that's not really what, what we're about. Take me fishing because we really want to attract those families with young kids. And that's not something that's going to motivate them to go. 
we want women to see versions of themselves, moms, sisters, you know, uh, cousins uh, out on the water, having fun, getting those relaxing benefits and, and catching fish. And we saw a big upturn in that population during the pandemic, right? We saw lots of moms, particularly single moms, taking kids fishing because it was an activity that they could engage in safely being outside and also something that they could all do fairly easily. So how did the pandemic affect just what you and RBFF were doing in that kind of recruitment? The pandemic was kind of a perfect storm for fishing participation. Um, I mean, when we were going through so many hardships as a as a world, a country, a world, um, it was a silver lining. It was something that people could do safely because they could do it outdoors and being social distanced. People had more time on their hands, which is always a huge barrier to participation. Uh, and we're looking for things to do locally. And what we saw was a huge uptick. I think it was uh, 5 million new uh, people went fishing in 2020. Um, and it's come back down a little bit. We retained about half of those folks. But uh, yeah, we saw a big surge in participation. So you mentioned the 2018 Women Making Waves event that you ran in Seattle with, with media. Could you talk about the need for and the methods for recruiting more women in recreational fishing and boating through these kind of events. And I kind of also want to know, does having a daughter invigorate your dedication to that recruitment? <laughs> um, I don't know if I can answer that. I don't know if we have data around that, but certainly that's a powerful um, relationship and motivator, either the mother daughter or the father daughter um, uh, fishing buddy kind of situation. I, I think you know, our, our goal is to get more people into the sport to support the conservation efforts. And I think we have a huge opportunity to recruit more women. Um, if we can get women to participate at the same rate as men, we would increase participation by 14 million. I mean, that's a, that's a huge opportunity and that benefits everyone in the industry and the important fisheries work that's happening behind it. So saying that, then I wonder, and this is this is just me off the cuff here, you know, you mentioned that one of the top reasons for women to fish is to be with family and to be with friends. But part of the narrative that men have constructed over the last 200 plus years of recreational fishing was recreational fishing was a way to get away from family and work and friends. So how do we make that congruent? <laughs> Well, it, it, they're different marketing campaigns, right? It's in the messaging and it's how you reach out to folks. Um, you, what you just made me think of, it's interesting. It's cultural too. Uh, we have a campaign in the Spanish language, Vamos a Pescar. And when we launched that, we did some focus groups to really get impressions and understand why Hispanics go fishing, why they don't, you know, so we could build our campaign. And we were showing um, these gentlemen some images of folks fishing. And there was one image that was a male, a single, you know, white male out on the boat. And it was very serene. You could tell he was out there to escape. And this one guy says, what's wrong with him? He doesn't have any friends. <laughs> it's, a, it's a different motivator. And we know in the Hispanic culture, they um, engage in activities to be with their family and friends and they bring their extended family. So, you know, it, yeah, that's that's really interesting because it does sort of 
put us in the position of having to take a better cultural assessment of those narratives of the narrative of solitude that was built around so much of fishing lore versus the narrative of community, which is not the cultural approach that we're we're familiar with in marketing or just in the literature of, of fishing. So that's that's really kind of an interesting way of thinking about this is that we're we're having to come up with new stories here because we've had such a one-sided story for so long. So I want to stick with that for a second then. And you know, it's not just women, and you've mentioned this, and you mentioned Vamos a Pescar, uh, which I was going to bring up also, but we've also been talking in the industry a lot about, or particularly over the past few years, the need for more attentive to matters of diversity, not just bringing women in, but bringing in, in, in Hispanics, African Americans, all sorts of uh, you know, diverse groups. Could you talk about RBFF's role in increasing diversity in fishing and boating? Yeah, well, it's really important um, and it's something we've been a proponent of for a long time. I think, you know, as we're looking at participation as a whole in the U.S., um, the the largest group of participants is that older white male. And if we are to maintain a participation rate uh, and or grow it, we have to bring in new participants. And when you look at our um U.S. demographics, they're changing a lot. And that younger participation or younger participant, the youth, I want to say like, it, it's Gen Z, I'm not, I'm not doing this very eloquently, but Gen Z, which is our youngest generation, is the most diverse population of, of all the different generations. So we have to open our minds and open our marketing campaigns to invite those demographics, those folks who have not traditionally been involved in the sport in order to sustain it for future generations. You know, I, I think this is just a fantastic objective, not just for RBFF, but really in changing how we think about the culture of recreational fishing and boating. It, it, it begs a lot of questions, but the thing that I think I'm really thinking about as you're talking, and we you know briefly mentioned the idea of storytelling and you know, the role storytelling plays and how we share and spread that passion about fishing and boating. And I know that you consider storytelling important and that storytelling plays a role in creating the culture of fishing and boating. And it also opens the spaces of recreational and fishing and boating to women and other populations previously ignored. Could you talk a little bit about storytelling and fishing and boating? I know you list that actually as one of your areas of expertise. So I'm kind of curious about how you think about how storytelling can change how we approach recreational fishing and boating. I, storytelling is really important. And I think it ties back to the piece uh, that we were talking about earlier with women in you need to see yourself in something to part to want to participate in it or to want to buy a product or, you know, that's, that's how marketing works. You, you want to see <clears throat> that there is belonging there for you. And storytelling helps us accomplish that in a uh, more organic way. You're learning about someone's experience in the water. You're hearing about um, the, the things that they did firsthand. You're seeing a little bit of yourself in their story and thinking, oh, I can do this. I could give this a try. Um, it's a little bit of a uh, softer approach. You know, it's not an, an advertisement that's saying, hey, do this. Um, it's it's letting you into the more emotional and personal side of it. Yeah, and I mean, I think back, you know, the fact that 
fishing, not necessarily boating, but fishing has been the most written about sport in the history of the English language. And so, you know, stories, the fish story, whether a lie or, you know, an adventure story has been central to not just the development of the activity, but to the industry itself, how we're telling these stories. And, you know, I, 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 I just wrote a piece for Florida Sportsman about uh, the increase in numbers of fishing backpacks as tackle management. And the only way I could write that story was starting off by talking about Nick Adams and that scene when he gets off the train carrying a backpack to go, you know, fishing the Heming, you know, the classic Hemingway big two-hearted river opens with a backpack. So how we how we even come to think about product inside of the industry is also driven by the stories that have been told for, you know, decades and decades. Okay, so I want to shift gears just a little bit now and talk about the boating industry in particular. And I know RBFF has several programs like the LAPS Boat Registration Program that are designed to encourage retention among boaters to keep them on the water. Could you talk a little bit about RBFF's interaction with the boating industry? And I'm specifically interested in the impact the pandemic had on the boating industry and RBFF's relationship with National Marine Manufacturers Association and that that how that plays out. So boating is an essential part of our mission. We are charged with increasing participation in both fishing and boating. Um, and we do, as you said, have several initiatives um, aimed at boating specifically. I will say though, to, to meet our mission, we have a relatively flat budget. Um, we try to maximize those dollars by first focusing on fishing from a boat. Um, we are, uh, primarily focused on that space and, and that place where people are fishing from their boat as a way to take their fishing experience to the next level, right? You start on the shore, you start on the pier, and now you want to go, oh, oh, there's some fish over there. I'm going to get a boat and go do that. But at the same time, we partner very closely with the National Marine Manufacturers Association and their Discover Boating Campaign Um to ensure that we are getting through to all boaters and we coordinate our marketing activities um, to make sure that we're throwing the biggest net out there possible collectively. Now, during the pandemic, we actually came together and um, combined campaigns. This was the first time we've ever done this. Um, they were struggling a little bit <clears throat> with funding. Our funding is a grant, so it was already in place. We said, hey, let's let's come together, rally around what we call our get on board campaign to inspire people to get outside during the pandemic and enjoy everything it has to offer. So that was a that was a historic thing for our industry. And it did very, very well. Um, they have since moved on to another campaign and and we're still doing get on board. But we do work very, very closely with them um, around voting. So. How did the pandemic had a very different kind of effect on the boating industry than it did on the tackle industry in that? I mean, well, yes and no, you're right. It was hard to get stuff. And what has happened in the boating industry is that it is really hard to get boats right now. I'm hearing from manufacturers, you know, two year, one year, three year waiting lists to get boats. How did that run into run headlong into the efforts to get more people on the water in boats. 
That's a great question. And it's really interesting to see how the two activities, which are so inextricably linked, um, actually came out a little bit different from the pandemic, right? Fishing went way up, soared. And yes, people had a hard time getting tackle, but they were still able to um, get out and recreate by and large. Boating, um, yeah, the, because of the supply chain, so many people had a hard time getting in boats. But what's interesting to me, the behaviors that are different is after the pandemic, fishing fell, like I said, about half, we lost about half of everyone that came in, whereas boating is staying higher a little bit longer. And, you know, I don't have any hard data on that, but you can only assume that that's a big purchase. That's a big investment. You're not going to just jump away from it once, or people are just now getting their boats <laughs> and moving forward with it. it. It's really interesting to see um, how that's changing. Another thing though, that I think uh, we saw on the boating side that the pandemic surfaced as a big opportunity was boat clubs. Um, they have been doing fantastic and boat clubs really resonate with that younger demographic too, who live in more urban areas. They don't have the space or the time to deal with, you know, boat maintenance and storage and all of that. So it, it, it definitely unearthed some um, other growing areas of the segment. All right. One last RBFF question. You recently gave a talk with our mutual friend, Rob Southwick of Southwick Associates, about how the pandemic affected the boating and fishing industries and some trends that have emerged during and since the pandemic. Could you give us some insider insight and tell us a bit about what trends you're seeing unfolding for fishing and boating beyond the boat clubs? The trends that I see unfolding, um, we're seeing growth in our diverse segments, which is good. Uh, we're seeing right now we have the most women fishing that we have in, in our recorded history. Uh, we're seeing growth in diverse segments such as Hispanic, um, African-American, and our youth segment as well. Um, I think one of the things that we keyed in on, on our campaign during the pandemic that really resonated with folks is this idea that you receive uh, mental health and wellness benefits when you go fishing and boating. Um, that really resonates with folks. And that's a trend I think we see growing in the social space for sure. Um, trying to think what else, you know, we're, we're up against this big challenge though, as the world is opening back up, we, we're definitely seeing a drop off as people are going back to concerts and sporting events and movies. And that time barrier is coming back in. Now, I believe you make time for the things that you love. Time is just sort of an excuse to me. But, you know, we're we're back in competition with some other things. So that's a big challenge that we're seeing and a trend. Okay, so I said no more RBFF questions, but I'm going to I want to ask you a take me fishing question. Tell us about the resources that are there for new anglers and how the takemefishing.org group and everything they provide on that web page can play into encouraging new anglers uh, to get out there on the water, to get fishing, to go to that local pond or lake, because there, there's some incredible resources there. Takemefishing.org was built as kind of a one-stop shop to get started fishing. So while we do have some information for more advanced anglers, it is primarily aimed at your newcomer who really is just getting started and doesn't know where to go, what to do. 
Um, we And that's how we break it down. There's a how-to section that goes through everything from what equipment you need, how to tie knots, how to fish with kids. Uh, and there's a where-to section. We have an interactive map where you can find locations near you. You can see catches that have happened nearby and what baits people were using. Um, and then we connect folks with their state agency for fishing licenses and boat registrations. I don't know if you've ever tried to navigate a state agency website. <laughs> it can be really confusing. So we've taken you know, all those links out. It's a one-click link to the fishing license information. I use it to buy licenses and I know other avids who use it as well. But, um, you know, another big resource, I think it's Take Me Fishing, but it's on YouTube. Our YouTube channel has really, really, really taken off over the last few years. And that's where we house the majority of our content. Um, if you are an avid angler and you are teaching someone, go check it out because there are videos you could share with them, tutorials on how to do certain things, how to get started. Um, there's actually videos on how to mentor someone too and, and taking kids out as well. So that's a great resource uh, that you could use. Yeah, I think these resources are fantastic. I was having a conversation with an editor from uh, another publication the other day about how a lot of us who've been writing or you know doing work in the industry for so long need to better embrace the idea of the new angler that so many times, particularly with the the new moms over the last year who just want to know, how do I tie this knot? Or well, you know, what, what bait do I use? What lure do I use? And so many people who've been doing this for so long, when they get asked those questions, you hear that sigh of exasperation of, I can't believe you don't know how to do this. But, you know, I, you know, I, I, I have it my, my profession is teaching. And so I have to constantly remind myself that a lot of times this is the first time anybody's heard that. And so I think that what Take Me Fishing has done and also some other publications that are out there is really embrace that idea of we've got to start at ground zero with a lot of this instruction. And remember that a lot of our new audience does, we can't assume that they already know what we know. And so I, I, you know, I want to applaud what Take Me Fishing has done because I think that if we're going to encourage new anglers, we've got to teach new anglers. So, absolutely, and, and it's so like sometimes we use a couple of our employees who are not who didn't grow up fishing as a as our barometer, but like it's as simple as it can be as simple as like okay, you bought this rod and reel combo, how do you how do you string the line? Like how do you you know. They don't even know what to do with it. <laughs> right, right. And, so, you know, that's something that we all need to get better at. You know, not not only with thinking about how we do that with our own kids, but how we do that with, you know, somebody we've invited for the first time to go fishing, not just making the assumption. So, yeah. Okay, we started off this conversation today hearing about your introduction to fishing. But since those early days and given the work you do with RBFF and Take Me Fishing, You've had the opportunity to do a lot of fishing in a lot of places. Where, what are some of your favorite places to fish and what are your favorite kinds of fishing? Oh my gosh. Well, the Keys is a, is a, is a favorite because I grew up there. It's my, my hometown, but I do really enjoy um, offshore fishing. Um, Costa Rica. I've had the opportunity to go down to Capos, Costa Rica a few times and catch big Pacific sails. That's been really fun. Uh, but I have to tell you, this um, salmon trip we just took recently, that was really a thrill. I have never caught a salmon before, and it's a very um, exciting and thrilling fish to catch. I, it's hard to pick a favorite. 
and there's stories that go with all of them, of course. Well, and you know, I, I was noticing too, you, you're very vocal, if that's the right word, on social media about sharing those stories too. I mean, the, so you're you're not just out there having the experience; you're also making sure that people can benefit from seeing what you're seeing as well. I mean, I think I think when I open up Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. <laughs> It, it's your posts that come rolling up first every single time. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting, like at this point in my life, kind of reflecting back on, on what fishing means to me. I was thinking about this recently. Um, you know, I didn't realize until I was older that it, it's so much more than catching a fish. And I think about the relationships I've built and developed on the water. You know, for example, my, my dad and I don't always see eye to eye on things, uh, politically, socially, but when we're on the water together, that's our, that's our love language. And we can really bond over that and have a fabulous time. Um, we try to book fishing trips as part of every vacation that we take. And we have some of the most amazing and hilarious memories and find ourselves always recounting these stories, you know? So it's, it's really, um, meaningful to me. Oh, that's fantastic. So with that in mind, I want to get to our traditional wrap-up question on the Rodcast. And that is, so what's your grail fish? What's the fish you still want to catch? That bucket lips fish out there with Stephanie's name on it. Oh, boy. Which one? <laughs> there can be many. I have not caught a permit. I have not caught a bonefish. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your dad's a flats guide and you have not got the two key flats fish out of the keys. I know. See, I blame that on not having the patience as a teenager to like, cause that's kind of like, you have to be quiet and kind of hunt the fish. Right. I'm a talker obviously. So <laughs> I never had the patience to go after those, but in the freshwater, I would love to catch a muskie. I've never caught a muskie. That would looks really fun too. I had another guest say muskie, and I said, you need to call John Mazurkowitz and just have him put you on a muskie. So. Right? <laughs> yeah, we have a staffer who's from uh, Wisconsin, and she keeps telling me. she She's not fished in the Keys, and I've not fished in Wisconsin. And we're like, we need to do a flip-flop. <laughs> that sounds like a fair trade. Right? So, Stephanie, I can't thank you enough for being on the Rodcast today. I really want to offer my sincere gratitude for all you do to support fishing and boating and the work you do to encourage participation in these wonderful activities. Thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. I appreciate you having me and, and helping me get the word out about the work that we're doing. Thank you so much. Oof, oof, oof. Them old hound dogs are barking, and if I am not mistaken, though my hound dog ease is a bit rusty, I do believe them dogs are asking for a drink of water, and while they're lapping up their water, I think it's time we take a break and lap up a little bourbon on the Fishing Professor's Bourbon Break. And on today's break, I'll be taking a pour of Redemption Straight Bourbon Whiskey. And for clarity's sake, in this review, I'm talking about Redemption Straight Bourbon. They also make a high rye bourbon, a weeded bourbon, a rum cast rye whiskey, a barrel-proof bourbon whiskey, and a couple others. And I'll save those for other reviews and focus here on the straight bourbon, mostly because that's the one I've been drinking. Now, Redemption really earned its reputation for Redemption Rye, but they've also staked a legitimate claim in the bourbon market as well. 
Now, that reputation is also relatively new since redemption didn't appear on the scene until 2010. The distillery is overseen by native Kentuckian and master blender and head distiller Dave Carpenter. Dave founded Redemption with Michael Canbar, and in 2015, they sold the company to the Dutch Family Wines and Spirits Company, which was founded in 1981. You probably know some of their wine brands like Josh Sellers, Layer Cake, and Yellowtail, a great fish name for wine, by the way. They also own Gray Whale Gin, Bib and Tucker Small Batch Bourbons, and Masterson's Rye, as well as some others. Now, Redemption's story about their whiskey invokes a long-standing Kentucky distiller tradition, pointing to the preferences for rye over bourbon pre-prohibition. With that in mind, Redemption touts their return to pre-prohibition methods for making their rye and then translating those approaches into their other whiskeys as well, including the straight bourbon whiskey, which we're talking about today. Now, the Redemption bourbon is a rye-forward bourbon with its mash bill of 75% corn, 21% rye, and 4% barley, and it's aged in new charred oak barrels. Now, it's not a long-aged bourbon, usually aging for between two and two and a half years. The Redemption bottle represents that pre-prohibition ethos, looking like an antique bottle with the Redemption logo molded into the glass and really aesthetically pleasing dual sprig of rye is also molded on the glass. I just got to say that little detail, that little sprig of rye that they have on the bottom of the glass, that little detail on the bottle is a really pleasing effect. I like that a lot. The bourbon itself verges on a dark golden color, leaning more toward a caramel color. Because of the glass of the bottle isn't encumbered with a massive label, when the light shines through the bottle, those golden hues really accentuate, almost like a light tea color or the color of a lightly tannic river. It's a really beautiful color. That heavy corn and heavy rye blend accounts for the bourbon's sweet nose with a hint of spice and some anise. It's an 88-proof bourbon, so it's a lower-scale alcohol bourbon. So you're not going to get a lot of the spice or burn in the nose or in the palate. But there's a lot of pleasant sweet in the nose and the palate. The palate opens sweet and light, with that corn showing up alongside some caramel and vanilla. With that oak influence, it opens almost like a good toffee or coated pop or coated, to, toffee coated popcorn. Likewise, that rye heavy blend offers up that great rye spice throughout that sweet corn experience. What's odd to me is the finish, which starts off as a continuation of the sweet caramel vanilla taste, but that dissipates quickly, leaving a kind of earthy taste, almost like mushrooms or peat. In this way, the sweetness is sort of lost at the end, not in an unpleasant way, it's just that you end up on a different path than where you started. Ultimately, Redemption is a mid-market bourbon, it's about $30 a bottle, and it finds a good home in that space. I think the ethos of Redemption and their embrace of the pre-prohibition narrative make the bourbon an appealing purchase. And it's a light, easy bourbon to drink, probably best suited for those newer to bourbon or those who are fine with an average bourbon, but it's not a bourbon you're going to want to pour when you're looking for the experience of a top-tier bourbon. I'll admit that over the last few months, I think I've been through three bottles of the Redemption Straight Bourbon Whiskey because it's one of those bottles that when they're on sale or I just want a less expensive bourbon to have around, it's worth buying. But it's not on, it's not on my, oh crap, I'm almost out of list. So I make sure I get more. It's more of that bottle that I see at the store and think, oh yeah, I might as well pick up another bottle of that and then not feel guilty about it because of the cost. 
So yeah, Redemption Straight Bourbon Whiskey is an average bourbon that's worth its price point and not bad to have around. The bottle looks good on the shelf, and that alone makes it worth having on your shelf for when guests say, ooh, that looks good, and you can pour them a few fingers, boast about the pre-prohibition approach, and not waste your good stuff on them. So those are my thoughts about Redemption Straight Bourbon Whiskey. As always, before we go, and as a final note on my regular disclaimer, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distiller and distributor have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of whiskey know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to Hog's Breath Saloon in Key West, one of the greatest bars in the country. Now, what you may not know is that the Hog's Breath actually first opened in Fort Walton Beach, Florida in 1976 by Alabama native Jerry Dormany, who wanted a bar where his fishing buddies could hang out. It wasn't until 1988 when Jerry moved the bar to Key West, where the fishing and diving were good. They've got great music, great drinks, and an atmosphere that can't be beat. Hog's Breath has certainly been etched in my memory as a happy place after all the nights I've spent there. And like they say at the Hog's Breath, Hog's Breath is better than no breath. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. Let's get back to casting. All right, it's time for the Fishing Professor's Top 10 for the week. And this week, I want to count down my top 10 soft body lures for targeting redfish. But of course, we have to throw in a few caveats here because let's face it, soft bodies for redfish is simultaneously a massive subject and a pretty ambiguous subject. So to be fair about it, I'm going to talk just about the soft bodies, not the jig heads, spinner baits, weighted hooks, or any other rigging component. And while I might talk about some pre-rigged lures, mostly I'm going to be pointing to the soft bodies I find most effective and efficient in catching redfish just as the soft body. Also, I'm going to stick to swim bait, jerk bait, and shad style bodies. For example, a lot of the companies I'll talk about make soft body shrimp patterns, but since I've covered shrimp often enough in other top tens and in articles I've written for Florida Sportsmen and Saltwater Sportsmen, I may mention a company's shrimp, but I'm not counting them in this top ten. For example, Four Horsemen Lures out of southern Louisiana makes a fantastic artificial shrimp, the Boom Boom Shrimp. But they don't mold other plastics, and the Boom Boom Shrimp comes pre-rigged and are designed to work in conjunction with their fantastic line of popping corks for redfish and trout. But since all Four Horsemen does is the Boom Boom Shrimp and not other soft, excuse me, not other soft body options, they don't get counted today. Though I hope my many unsponsored endorsement here hints at my respect for what Aaron Pierce and Roger D are doing. I am also not going to offer up color selections since color preferences are always informed by local conditions and personal preferences. So if you think I'm going to proclaim chicken on a chain better color for reds than nuclear chicken or chartreuse ghost, you can get over that right now because it ain't happening. Likewise, I need to be clear that I fish a lot of varieties of soft bodies ranging in design from paddle tails to curly tails to shads and so on. 
and I fish with lots of different company soft bodies. So part of my agenda here is to offer up some variety among design and company. And given the sheer numbers of companies that make soft bodies that are applicable to red fishing, I sure can't give props to all of them, but will do my best to spread the love. And of course, there are a lot of fantastic manufacturers out there molding plastics for regional markets that I just haven't encountered. So I haven't used their lures, even though they're probably fantastic. Always check your local tackle shops for local lure manufacturers. And I will remain transparent about this. These are the soft bodies I really use. No company shilling here, no payola, no sponsored favoritism. So let's kick it off with my number 10 most favorite soft body for targeting redfish. And that's a smaller local company called Down South Lures out of Chapel Hill, Texas, and owned by Mike Boss. They've got this line of soft bodies called the Supermodel. It's a five-inch five inch lure that's got this fantastic long lean tail that tapers into a paddle tail. It's got fantastic action. There's a version they do called Supermodel Eyes that have the extra large painted eyes that are just really add to the visual attraction of this soft body. It's super effective and one of those soft bodies that I'm confident going to time and time again. At number nine, I'll go with Zoom Bait Company, a company that has been molding plastics since the 1970s and has earned a reputation as a premier plastic lure manufacturer. Now, here's the thing, though. Zoom Bait Company's reputation is firmly planted in the bass world, but they make some soft bodies that easily transition into saltwater and are go-get-you baits for redfish. And after all, redfish in a lot of places are known as red bass. So, for example, Zoom's Z Swim 3.8 is a 3.8 inch paddle tail style lure with a rib body that I really like, but it's Zoom's boot tail fluke that gets my attention. The boot tail fluke comes in a four and five inch model. It's got the nimble action of a fluke body that rolls beautifully and the hard shaking tail of the boot tail. Interestingly, across the Zoom catalog, they offer more than 400 color options, but the boot tail fluke only comes in seven. Nonetheless, this is a great plastic to have around. On the Ocho, let's give a nod to Offshore Angler's XPS Soft Salty Shad. Of course, Offshore Angler is the house brand name for Bass Pro's line of saltwater tackle. I really like the Salty Shad because of its body design. It's got kind of a long squared body that tapers into a long tail that tapers back out into an angled paddle tail, giving it a really pronounced tail action. It rigs well with a jig head or on a spinner bait. It's a four-inch bait and comes in 11 color options. Plus, because it's a Bass Pro house brand, it tends to cost a bit less than many of the other comparable lures out there. All right. At number seven, I'm going to go with a really great innovative company, and that's Monster 3X. My buddy and Monster 3X pro staffer, Eric Henson, who guides in the Sarasota area, turned me on to Monster 3X, and I've been very grateful that he did. Now, Monster 3X is strictly a plastic lure company, so they have really focused their expertise. They do make some excellent shrimp patterns like the X-Move, but for today's countdown, it's their X-Swim series that I'm going to point out. Available in four and three quarter, seven and nine inch versions, these are fantastic soft bodies. They're made from a TPE plastic and are thus very durable lures. I do recommend though, like with any TPE plastic, you store them separately from other soft plastics where they can interact and will probably melt. These lures are really durable. You can stretch them a mile and they won't break. Just a quality product all around. 
All right, at number six, I've got Z-Man. And while Z-Man makes a ton of great plastics for fresh and saltwater applications, including a groovy shrimp called the Z-Man Scented Shrimp, it's the Diesel Minnow Z that gets my attention for redfish today. Now, the Diesel Minnow Z is made using Z-Man's proprietary Elaz Tech, that's E-L-A-Z-T-E-C-H, material, which is super soft and incredibly strong. In fact, one of the things I like about Z-Man soft plastics is that I can fish them all day without having to replace them as often as I do other soft bodies. Short bites, strong strikes, they just don't damage these lures. The Diesel Minnow Z is molded with a hook slot and a split dorsal fin, making it easy to rig weedless. And that design also allows for easier hook sets. It's available in four, five, and seven inches, and they have over 42 color patterns for them. All right, at number five, I'm going to go with an iconic company, DOA. What Mark Nichols did to build DOA is just remarkable. And if you haven't heard the news, last summer, after 37 years of lure manufacturing, Mark sold DOA to Mitch Dreisbach. Mark will remain with the company in a consultant role and continues to design lures, but there's a new, under new management sign on the doors of DOA. Nonetheless, DOA over the past years has put out some of the best soft bodies out there, and so many of them are deadly for redfishing. But rather than go through all the full catalog focused on redfish from DOA, I want to point to one of my all-time favorite DOA lures, and that's the CAL Swimbait. This bait is so versatile for rigging. It has fantastic action, comes in 39 color options. And I am not kidding when I say that I have a complete Plano box filled with nothing but these lures and hooks for rigging them. They're just that good. I want them around. And for the record, the DOA CAL swim baits are deadly on a slew of other species as well. In the number four car, we have got Unfair Lures, Unfair Smack Shad. This is another great design from Paul Van Reenen. The real plus with the Smack Shad is the plastic material Van Reenen uses in these lures. He's got to be, this has got to be one of the toughest TPE plastics out there. Unfair makes jig heads specifically for this plastic. Though with a little practice, you can get other jig heads or wide-gapped or weighted hooks to work with it as well. The Smack Shad is a minnow-styled soft swim bait that is at its best when retrieved with a twitching motion. It's got great realistic side-to-side -side tail wiggle. It's very soft, but like I said, it is also one of the toughest TPE plastic out there. It's a 5.3-inch lure. All right, in the Dale Earnhardt position, that's the number three position for you unanointed folks. I want to give that honored spot over to Berkeley and specifically the gulp line of lures, but not all of them simply because there have to be about 20 saltwater gulp soft bodies out there. So I'm holding up Berkeley's newer addition to the gulp lineup, and that's the Berkeley gulp swimming mullet. Of course, the recognizable feature of any gulp lure is its scent and scent dispersion, and the swimming mullet sure has that quality. But I also dig the body design on this soft body. It's molded with a big curly tail that gives it great action, and the body is molded to represent the eyes and heads and scales on the body. You can get them in three, four, five, and six inch sizes, and they come in about 25 color options. These are fantastic jigged or worked under a popping cork. All right, in the number two, the runner-up position, the deuce. I'm going to go with another iconic lure manufacturer, and that's Mirror Lure and their Provoker MRSP5 Scented Twitch Bait. This is a five-inch bait that is molded with a large pocket in the belly of the lure, so you can rig them a bunch of ways, including weedless. This is another bait designed for a twitching retrieve, 
and the long tapering tail gives the body a smooth swimming and darting action. The mold on these lures features natural bait fish profile with 3D eyes, gills, and scales. And as the name says, they are injected with a scent, a, a shrimp scent. This is just a great bait for, for redfish. And that brings us to my favorite soft body for targeting redfish. Red one, red one, red one, come in red one. Or the big red one. Oh, man, I love that movie. One of my all-time favorite Lee Marvin movies. Well, that and Paint Your Wagon. But Big Red One is phenomenal. Plus, you get Mark Hamill and Robert Carradine before he became a nerd. But after he starred in one of my all-time favorite John Wayne movies, The Cowboys. But enough about great movies. You need to hear about my Big Red number one. Ooh, that's kind of gross. But first, let's do a recap since I distracted you, and now you probably forgot the other nine great soft bodies for redfish. At number 10, Down South Lure Supermodel. At nine, Zoom Bait Company's Boot Tail Fluke. At eight, Offshore Angler's Salty Shad. At seven, Monster 3X. At six, Z-Man's Diesel Minnow Z and Paddler Z also. At five, DOA. We talked about a lot of DOA lures, but the focus on CAL's, the CAL swim bait. At four, unfair smack shad. At three, Berkeley gulp, particularly that swimming mullet. And at number two, we have got Mirror Lures Provoker MRSP5. And that brings us to my most reliable, most used soft body lure for targeting redfish. And that's the Saltwater Assassin Curly Shad. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think there's a single lure in the Saltwater Assassin catalog that isn't great for targeting redfish, but there's something about the curly shad that just works for me every time. I like the way the body is molded with a unique belly slit for rigging so it's easy to rig weedless. I like to retrieve this lure, and I like the way it swims, the way the tail moves back and forth, but it's how that tail steers the lure in a circular falling pattern when I stop the retrieve that really gets my attention and the attention of redfish. This is a shorter soft body at four inches. It comes in about 18 color patterns, including that chicken on the chain that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's for you, Tony. So yes, indeed, my number one redfish soft body comes to us from Robin Shiver at Saltwater Assassin, the Curly Shad. And that brings us to the glorious end of another glorious top 10 countdown. And if that top 10 doesn't inspire you to load up a box full of soft bodies and spend a few days chasing red tail, well, then you're missing the point of the top 10. As always, don't forget that if you have comments or questions about my top 10, please feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And as a reminder, my top 10 list is not sponsor-influenced, and that is that. Well, that just about does it for this week. I want to thank Stephanie Vadalero for joining us today, and I really want to thank her for all the great work she does with the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation and that fantastic program, Take Me Fishing. You can learn all about Take Me Fishing at takemefishing.org, and hey, someone should take me fishing. I also hope you enjoyed my words of wisdom about Redemption Rye and that you found my countdown of my top 10 soft bodies for targeting redfish to have inspired you to do a little inshore fishing this week. Hey, before I sign off, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The fish are on the flats. I say again, the fish are on the flats. 
And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which as always drops on Wednesday next week. And I hope you and each member of my listening crew will be getting out there and spreading the word about the Rodcast. If you're enjoying it, then chances are your friends probably will too. And of course, if you have a comment or question or anything about this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of, on any of those platforms that you listen to the podcast. Be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing, and be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!